We're going to cover a little bit of the corner from Zephaniah to Romans. You may be wondering if that is a natural corner, and we'll figure that out by the end of today. And then we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, which if you've looked over your note page, is no easy text. Um, in fact, it's got a couple of the hot-button issues in the whole New Testament in it. So it's going to be an exciting day. That's a little preview of coming attractions. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get rolling. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word together. Lord, we thank you for this class, for the things that you're doing in here. We thank you for Stella, for her heart to pray and to lead us this morning. Lord, I pray as we open your word that we would be obedient to it. Lord, that you would help us with our reactions, that you'd help us with our impulses, that you'd conform them to the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to see things that are marvelous in your word this morning and help us to obey it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do today, we are going to trace a crimson thread from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the book of Zephaniah to Romans. And in some ways, that will be extremely easy because the entire Bible speaks about one thing, Jesus Christ saving sinners like us. On the other hand, that will be very difficult because these books are separated by hundreds of years. They're culturally very different. Their messages are similar but to very different audiences. One is to Jews before Christ. One is to Gentiles after Christ. And if anything, that should show us the amazing quality of the Bible. We have 66 books of the Bible that are written over a span of thousands of years in different languages by different authors to different ethnicities and yet testify to one message that is immensely practical for us. So I just want to throw out two things that we're going to see today. We're going to see two things. The first thing is that we're going to see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the same through his son, Jesus Christ, who the Old Testament prophesies about and the New Testament looks back to and who we get to serve in the present. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this is important because this is the first heresy in the church. The first heresy outside of the New Testament is called Marcionism. It's by a guy named Martian, and this was before they knew about Martians, but his name is Marcion, and he was born in 85 AD, and the first heresy the church had to deal with was the belief that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. So Marcion actually established the first canon, the first list of biblical books. He threw out most of the Old Testament. He threw out the supernatural stuff in the New Testament. He liked Paul, so he kept that, kept parts of Luke, and that was his Bible. And the church had to combat that in the first century, late first century, early second century, A.D. And to this day, you'll hear people say, well, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath, but the New Testament God is a God of love. Or you'll hear them say, the Old Testament was totally fulfilled and we don't need it anymore. The New Testament tells us how to live. The church for 2,000 years has been battling this heresy, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are somehow different. But today we're going to talk about how God is the same in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in our lives today. The second thing that we're going to see is that transformation takes place no matter what you're doing. Transformation takes place no matter what you're doing. We usually think about transformation happening when you're following Christ. That is positive, active transformation. 
But what we're going to see in both Zephaniah and Romans is even if you're not trusting in Christ, you're being transformed. Now, I am a self-proclaimed coffee snob. Love coffee, love the process of making coffee. So like the hand grinder, where the beans were roasted, what flavors they have in them, what temperature the water is when you roast it. I love it. I love making it. I've got several buddies that are into it. So it's kind of a hobby for us. So last week we were on vacation with my family. My brother and sister-in-law were there. My parents were there. And my sister-in-law and I were really geeking out about the coffee. We'd ordered some nice coffee for the vacation. We're excited to make it. And the first morning we come in, I'm getting ready to set everything up. And I realized that my dad is brewing some coffee. I don't know where he got this coffee in the Mr. Coffee automatic pot. And I was like, you know we're about to make some really, really good coffee. And he's like, I I don't know if I'm going to like that coffee. I'm like, and you think you're going to like that coffee? And so the whole week we were fighting back and forth. He likes decaf, automatic brew. We like craft coffee beans in a French press or in a pour over. We're fighting all week. But one of the things that I was thinking through is the only thing I don't like about coffee is that there's only about a one minute or two minute window when it's the perfect temperature. That's all you got. You put all the time into making it and you got about one or two minutes when it is the perfect temperature. And my poor brother, my middle brother, Carson, has not mastered the whole um, blow on it and then sip it so it doesn't burn your tongue. So he really can't drink it until there's about 30 seconds of window. And he doesn't even like coffee. So one of the things that you learn is coffee's either going to be getting colder or it's going to be getting hotter. You're either going to be microwaving it or it's going to be getting colder. And the truth about what we're going to see today is that is the exact same way that we are. There is no such thing as staying at 104 degrees or whatever degree you like your coffee. There's no way. There's no way for you to keep from transforming. You will either be getting hotter or you will be getting colder. And without the miraculous intervention of God, we will all end up cold coffee. Let's turn our attention to Zephaniah. So it's my understanding you've been in Zephaniah for a little while, right? Yes? Okay, I was going to say it's going to be a lot of miles we need to log if you haven't been in Zephaniah. So what I want to do is just do a quick recap, walk through of what Zephaniah is saying so that we can transition into the New Testament to Romans. So Zephaniah was prophesying in Judah. He was prophesying after the fall of Israel. So the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722. And about 70 or 80 years later, he comes onto the scene. He's prophesying to Judah. Capital is Jerusalem. And his parents, we know, must have trusted God during the wicked reign of Manasseh because he's prophesying during the reign of Josiah, who was a good king. In fact, he's one of only two good kings. In Judah. They had a really bad record of kings. So his parents had trusted God during a tough time. He was trusting God during a time of reform. His name means Yahweh has hidden or Yahweh has protected. That's a lot what his message is about. So he starts to preach. He starts to speak to the people. His contemporaries are Jeremiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. They're all speaking a similar message to Israel at this time, to Judah. 
And even though Judah had watched their older brother Israel, the the tribes of Israel, be carried into captivity because of their idolatry, Judah refused to repent. They refused to repent, even though they had seen where idolatry leads. And so Zephaniah is trying to make plain to them the consequences that are coming. And so if there is one theme of the book of Zephaniah, and this makes sense given what is coming for them, it's the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. There's not a prophet in the Bible who speaks about the day of the Lord as clearly and as consistently as Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, the whole book of Zephaniah follows an arc. It's three steps. It's easy to understand, and I'm sure Steve has made this plain to you. The first thing that he talks about is the impending judgment. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Neither silver nor gold will be able to deliver you on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. You can tell why Zephaniah was probably not a very popular guy. Right? He, didn't, he, he didn't, didn't have a big ministry. The day of the Lord is coming. That's his first point. Number one on sermon prep for Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is coming. Wrath will come on everyone who does not do the will of the Lord. The second thing that he says, the second thing he wants to make clear is not just wrath is coming, but that everyone is involved. Right? There are no spectators in Judah. Everyone is involved. The righteous get more righteous, the sinful get more sinful, but everybody has a role to play in the coming judgment of God. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And then in, verse, in chapter 3, he says, Woe to you who are rebellious and defiled. The oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. The picture that we see through the middle of the book of Zephaniah is that whether you are righteous or whether you are unrighteous, you will be a victim of the wrath of God. Some will be spared. Some will be punished. But everyone will experience something that's coming from God. So no person in Judah can claim, well, I'm not religious or I'm not interested, or I'm not a part of what's happened, or I have done good things. He says, unless you are seeking mercy and humility, that is your only chance maybe to escape the wrath of the Lord. One of the things that this points out to us that we'll see later in the book of Romans, one of the commentators put it this way, there's no such thing as a second generation child of God. No such thing as a second generation child of God. Every generation, whether it's in Israel or now, must own God's covenant, not relying on the faith of a previous generation. There's no such thing in Israel as a second generation Israelite. And one of the things Paul is going to tell us is there's no such thing as a second or third generation Christian either. Everyone has responsibility for the wrath of God that is coming. Part three, God will save those who turn to him. The wrath of God is coming Everybody is going to experience it, but God will save those who turn to him. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For at that time when the wrath of the Lord comes, I will change the speech of peoples to a pure speech. 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him in one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, will bring their offering. And then in verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do justice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. One of the most amazing pieces of the book of Zephaniah, and this is one of the things that's going to transfer into the New Testament, is that it shows from the beginning to the end of the book a transformation in the people of God. For those who want to be spared, for those who want to receive mercy instead of judgment from the Lord, there is a transformation that must take place in them. In chapter 1, in the opening words, in verse 7, of the book, it says for the people to sing, but it's a song of woe. Sing a song of woe of the wrath of God that is coming. But then in 3.14, it says, let the people sing because the Lord has sung over them. In fact, maybe the most famous verse in the book of Zephaniah comes at the very end, 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. With loud singing. If you read this verse and you're living in 650 BC, you might wonder, what could this possibly mean? We know, looking backwards in 586, they're going to be totally destroyed. In fact, even before that, the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to take the powerful people from their community and they're going to ship them off to Babylon. We know this from the story of Daniel and his friends in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The powerful people are going to be taken and then finally in 586, they're going to come in, they're going to level the temple, they're going to destroy the community, they're going to send everybody into the disparate parts of the earth. And maybe this word hangs in their mind. The Lord your God is among you. He's with you. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with singing. What could this possibly mean? In the narrative arc of Zephaniah, you have judgment. Everybody's involved. Those who turn to the Lord will be saved. That's pretty much the picture of what God is speaking to his people in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but there's a glimmer of what's to come. And I think it's found in that word transformation. Transformation must take place in the people of God or they will undergo the wrath of God. That's the theme of Zephaniah. And it's really the theme of the Old Testament. Since the fall, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were expelled from the garden. It was guarded by an angel with a flaming sword. There's no way you're getting back in there. Because to be in there, you have to be perfect. And so throughout all of history, God makes covenants with his people to give them rules to show them his holiness, to help them to walk in a way that is righteous. But we see over and over and over again, whether it's sacrifices or whether it is purity rituals in the temple or whether it is prayers and offerings that they're, they're giving to the Lord, something is demanded from them. Transformation. Become a people who is holy, who is humble, who is righteous, who is loving, who is merciful. 
Transformation is required, starting in the Old Testament and certainly continuing into the New Testament. One of the study Bibles that I love to look through is called the Gospel Transformation Bible. It says, the theme of Zephaniah previews what's coming in Christ. That those who are united to God, indwelt by the Spirit, begin to manifest from the inside out the fruit of such a radical internal transformation. And then we will become a people, humble and lowly, who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. That's the plan. That's the plan from the beginning of history to now, that God would create a people who are being transformed to seek him with their whole heart. So if this is the little glimmer in the Old Testament of what's to come through Christ, Romans is the spotlight, right? If this is just a little twinkle in the dark, it's just helping us to see what God is doing, then Romans is a spotlight, right? Sometimes Romans, the book of Romans can be very intimidating. If you try to read through Romans from beginning to end, it is overwhelming. It is a tough book. It's thick. It is full of argument, right? Very closely argued argument. You're not going to find any cool stories in the book of Romans. It is Paul's Magnum opus for what the gospel is. Now, the book of Romans was written probably from Corinth in around the year 58. And one of the things that we know that's really important about Romans is that Paul had not been to Rome when he wrote the book. Right? So Paul has planted churches all over the ancient east, right, in, around Jerusalem, up through Cilicia. He's planted churches in Greece, modern-day Turkey. But he has not been to Rome. And so he writes this letter. And if you look, if you've if you got a Bible in front of you, I put part of the passage on the sheet, but if you've got a Bible, he writes a pretty long letter. This is a lot longer than a letter that we would write. In fact, it's more like an essay that he writes to Rome. And having not been there is a really important feature for us. Because sometimes when you read the writings of Paul, we are tempted to dismiss them as to a specific community at a specific place in time. I don't know if you've ever read the books to Titus or Timothy and thought, well, this would be great if I were Timothy or if I were Titus. Or maybe you read the book to the Philippians and you think, my church is nothing like theirs. Maybe you, maybe you think that when you read 1 Corinthians. I hope you do. Because that church is crazy. They're not experiencing some of the problems we are. Some of them they are. But sometimes we write off Paul as writing to a specific time, a specific place, to a church that he loved, that he planted, that he had been to, but not so in the book of Romans. He'd never, ever been to Rome. And so what he is writing in Romans is the unchanging gospel for all time. Not to say that this isn't in the other books. It certainly is. It's just to say we don't even have an excuse to not believe it. The book of Romans is everything that you need to know to be a Christian, to follow God. And Paul knows this because he wants to write to a people that will help him do ministry. So in one sense, the book of Romans is the world's greatest fundraising letter. Can you imagine you open up the mail uh, sometime this week and you have a fundraising letter from somebody who works for Campus Crusade or somebody that works for IMB or somebody that's going to the nations and Instead of just giving you pictures and stories and encouraging notes of their ministry, they type you out the book of Romans. 
Can you imagine reading that for the first time? Because in Romans chapter 16, what Paul says is he's on his way to Spain. He's on his way to the ends of the earth. He wants to go to Spain, and he needs them to help finance his missionary journeys. And so in some ways, Romans is the greatest fundraising letter of all time. And what a better way to raise money for the gospel. What a better way to challenge people to give of themselves to the gospel than to lay out the gospel in 11 chapters, totally fleshed out, totally telling them what they need to know to follow Christ. That's Paul's goal in Romans. So we come to Romans. We know that it's to a Gentile audience. We know that he is arguing what the gospel is for 11 chapters, and then for the next five, he is telling us what it means to live the gospel out. Romans is a pretty simple general outline. It's theology and then practice. And we're going to cover today not necessarily an overview of Romans, but an intro to what Zephaniah spoke about and what Paul picks up in chapter 1. For the rest of the time studying, I think Steve is planning to take you through the book and discover the whole meaning. But what we're going to do today is just a flyover. In fact, you're going to hear uh, the theme of the book today in the sanctuary, in the service. So it's crazy how that happens. It's, the text for the sermon today is Romans 1, 16 and 17. We're going to pick up in verse 18. So it's almost like God's involved or something. Um, <laughs> but that wasn't planned. But anyway, you are going to get Romans, as much Romans as you can handle today. So if we turn our attention to the book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul introduces himself. He prays for the people. He thanks God for them. He gives the theme, which I'll read to you in verse 16, and I'm going to continue into our section for today. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of the book of Romans. Everything else is an explanation of that. So to start his argument in verse 18, he goes back to talk about what Zephaniah was talking about. For, this should be a familiar word after some time in Zephaniah, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds and animals, and creeping things. Let's pause there for a minute. The same three themes that Zephaniah covered start to appear in the book of Romans. The first one is the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, is coming. Now, Paul is going to give us more detail than Zephaniah. The wrath of God is coming. Look at verse 18. Why is the wrath of God coming? Because of ungodliness, unrighteousness, people who have suppressed the truth. The thing that Paul is most concerned about in Romans chapter 1, the thing that will bring about the wrath of God is the willful ignorance of humanity. One of the points that Paul makes is that everyone is accountable for the wrath of God because 
God has created us in a way to know him. This is not necessarily a popular point, but it's a biblical point. You've been created to know God. And those who do not know God do not know God, whether consciously or subconsciously, because they are suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth. So the wrath of God is coming because people don't love God. And one of the things that we're going to see is there's a direct connection between those who love God and those who love other people, those who do not love God, and those who do not love other people. So the wrath of God is coming. Those people who do not know him suppress the knowledge that they should have because God's attributes have been revealed. So I want to pause for about three minutes just to start to digest this at the tables. I want you to throw out something at your table among the people you're sitting with where you can see the knowledge of God, one of God's eternal attributes outside of the Bible. So this passage says, God can be seen in creation. So at your table, I want to ask you, what is one thing that you could know about God from looking at what he has made? What's one thing that you know about God from what he has made? Throw out a couple of things, and then we'll continue through this book here in about two or three minutes. Okay, what are some things, let's throw out a couple of things that maybe you discussed, probably landing on some similar things. What are some things, maybe two or three, that you can know about God by looking at what he's made? Anybody want to throw something out there? He has a sense of humor. What did you say? Little babies? What do we see about that? Perfection. Yeah, if they belong to you, yeah. Yeah. What else? 
human body. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, healing, design. We see rejuvenation take place. What else? Consistency, yeah. Yeah, morning and evening, morning and evening. What do we say over here? Just the orderliness of the whole universe. Absolutely. Yeah, the orderliness of the universe. How about one more? God is good. How do we see that in nature? He made it, right? He made it all. Yeah, except snakes, yeah. He made it all. One of the things that we see, if you look around and... Granted, we can argue this, right? This is a pretty common argument. We look around and we say, gosh, somebody, somebody had to have made this. Right? I read a line the other day, though, that was, that was funny. You know, the rebuttal to that is we talk about chance and time, and I don't want to venture there totally, but, you know, one of the things is, you know, we expected that uh, with enough time and enough chance that you would come up with something like this, which is absurd. And one of the things that Paul is saying here is, if you look around, it sure looks like this is designed. Sure looks like this is something that has been made. And I read a line the other day, and it said, you know, we were told that if you, if you uh, let enough monkeys type on enough keyboards, we would get the writings of Shakespeare. But the Internet has proved that we were wrong. <laughs> right? If you look around, if you look around, it sure looks like there is a God. And when you start to live your life, unless you are suppressing the truth, you can find out things about God just by being alive, just because he created you. Now, we don't believe that this is saving knowledge, right? We don't believe that without the intervention of God, without the revelation of the Bible, without somebody sharing the gospel, that you could just look at a tree and get saved. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, his divine nature, verse 20, can be clearly perceived since the creation of the world. Now, what does this do for the argument? It means that the wrath of God is coming against ungodliness and everybody will be held accountable for the knowledge of God. Everyone will be held accountable for the knowledge of God. So number one, the day of the Lord is coming. Paul does not present a much cheerier message at the beginning than Zephaniah does. Number two, everyone is involved. We've talked about this. Because people don't acknowledge God, their thinking becomes futile. One of the most unique things that happens in Romans chapter 1 is three times Paul says, because they did not acknowledge God, because they did not trust God, because they did not worship God, God gave them over to something, to futile thinking, right, to idolatry. God gave them over. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, there are two categories of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God eventually says, thy will be done. Those are the two categories that Paul's presenting here. Those who are acknowledging God, serving and worshiping Him. And those who God says, worship what you want. It's a sad passage. Everyone is involved in this. One of the greatest pictures of this in the Bible is in Isaiah chapter 46. In Isaiah 46... Uh, 1 through 2, God talks about, through the mouth of Isaiah, He talks about the people going into captivity. And as they're going into captivity, they are loading up their carts with their idols. These big, 
wooden or metal idols they're putting on these carts and they're carrying them on their backs and they're taking them with them into captivity. And what Isaiah says is, how ironic is it that they have to carry their gods into captivity? And God says this, listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from your youth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, to your gray hairs I will carry you, for I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. What's happened is people have forsaken the Lord and traded him Instead of being born by him and saved by him and carried by him, now they've traded that to something that they have to carry and they have to bear and they have to save and they have to feed and they have to pay homage to. And God's saying, if you would just turn to me, I will carry and I will save. But people don't want to do that. They want their idols. So they carry their idols on their back. They're being oppressed by them. And the picture that we get in Romans reinforces that. Claiming to be wise, in verse 22, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling men and birds and animals and creeping things. One of the ways we see this the most in our culture right now, there's a lot of demographic studies about the decline of Christianity in the United States of America. And one of the surprising things is it's not the committed Christians that are declining. In fact, the percentage of people who really are involved, who really are being transformed, who really are committed to their faith hasn't really gone down. What has gone down is nominal Christianity those who are associated in some way with church, those who are associated in some way with Christ, those who would pay lip service to the gospel have started to drift into the category called nuns, right? The nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S means you don't claim anything. You don't claim any religious affiliation. So around 20% of the public, which is tripled in the past 25 years, And 33% of those who are under 30 are in the category of none, no religion. And so what's happening in America is exactly what's happening in Romans chapter 1. Those who really don't trust Christ, right? Those who are not actively being transformed into the image of Christ are being transformed into the image of the idols they're making for themselves. It's the exact same thing that's happening here you will be transformed either towards the image of Christ or away from the image of Christ. But you won't stay in that unaffiliated category very long. The third thing that happens in Romans chapter 1 begins in verse 24. Now this is a tough passage. So listen to this first, right? And uh, let's talk about it in the context of what Paul is talking about. Therefore, God gave them up, this is again, because they had refused to honor God because they did not worship him, God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now you can see why Steve wanted to go out of town today, right? The wrath of God is coming. Everyone is involved. You will be transformed one way or the other. I think the reason that Paul spends so much time, I mean, could there be anything else that he doesn't list here that we could do that's wrong? This is the longest vice list in the whole New Testament. It's the longest list of things that are unrighteous and unholy in the whole New Testament. And I think that's to tell us something. When you refuse the knowledge of God, when you refuse to follow Christ, you don't stay in the same place. You are actually transformed to be more and more and more sinful. Uh, There's a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga who said, sin is self-abuse. Sin is self-abuse. That when we sin, we are more likely to sin. We know that, right? We don't need a philosopher to tell us that. We can experience that for ourselves. When you sin, you are more likely to sin. What the Bible says is sin actually transforms us to be more sinful. So the wrath of God is coming. Nobody is going to be excluded, but those who trust in the Lord will be saved. Those who trust in the Lord will be saved. Instead of doing unnatural things like Paul mentions here, men exchanging relations with women for relations with men, if you want to talk more about that, send me an email or look at our series that we did this summer on sexuality. The Bible says, look, they have exchanged God's plan for sex and they've perverted it into something else. And it's not just homosexuality that's included in here. It's any kind of sex that's not God's design. He's saying, This is unnatural. And in fact, it's not just sex. There's like 25 things listed here. But those, homosexuals, adulterers, prideful, hateful, deceitful people, those people who trust in the Lord will be saved. All of them who trust in the Lord will be saved. The book of Romans is a buildup. Right? The whole book, the first 11 chapters, is a buildup. It's one big theme. And because of that, Paul gives us a couple of little stop, stopping off points to catch our breath, to recap what he has said. And one of the best ones is in chapter 5, verse 1. He starts in 118 with his argument. That's what we're reading right now. He is indicting humanity to tell us, you must turn to the Lord to be saved. And then in 5.1, he tells us what might happen if we do that. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we've been made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So he continues this theme for 11 chapters, and then Paul does something that he does in every New Testament letter. He says, okay, if we believe that, What should happen? 
right? There, every time, if you read a New Testament letter of Paul's, you'll hit a big therefore about chapter 3 or chapter 4. Therefore, what's going to happen? In, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul gives us a therefore. If this is true, if the wrath of God is coming and you are included and I'm included, but those who turn to the Lord will be saved, what's going to happen? Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be transformed from sin to sin, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God gave them over to a debased mind. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the message of Romans, the continuation of the message of Zephaniah is, no matter if you've been given over to sin, no matter if you have spent your whole life being transformed into sin to varying degrees, if you put your trust in the Lord, He will transform your mind to know His will. So the challenge to us is not to be cold coffee. It's as simple as that. If you stay where you are, you will be transformed into something. And Romans, the study of Romans that you're about to go on with Steve, says you don't have to settle for being cold coffee. You don't have to settle for being transformed into sin. The wrath of God is coming. Everybody is involved. But those who put their trust in the Lord will be totally saved. And not just that, transformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. Lord, we pray that your word would tell us how to think. It would tell us how to feel. It would tell us how to respond to you. Lord, uh, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to this message, that we would just look at our lives, whether we've been following you forever or just a few days. Lord, we pray that we look at our lives and say, who am I being transformed into? Am I starting to look more like Christ? Do I have it on autopilot? Am I, am I unaware of the things that are happening to me to make me look more like the world? And Lord, I pray that you give us the strength to say, not anymore. Lord, we want to look like your son, Jesus. We want to be people that... Zephaniah talked about who are in your midst that you say, that you sing over with loud songs. We pray that you do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.